Rippy Writes with Brian Scott Rippy. Transcript can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have. What is up on a Monday? I am Brian Scott Rippy. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Rippy Writes podcast. It is our first post-game Sunday conversation on a Monday because of the Labor Day weekend with Weldon Rodenberg. We talked about Ole Miss's blowout win over Mercer, what we saw from the quarterback position, depth, team speed, Took a look around the SEC, and of course, at the end, the fastest growing segment on American soil, Soccer Corner. So, think you'll enjoy the conversation. Buckle up, though. Before we do, I want to take a quick break to remind you. The podcast is brought to you by C Spire. All right, time to upgrade your home internet to the best service in the market with C Spire Home Fiber. The past few years have proven how important it is to have reliable home internet connection for you and your family. That's why C Spire Home provides the most reliable internet service with 99% uptime. C Spire also provides, prides themselves with the best customer service in the in-home internet market. Their customer service is award-winning, local, based out of the Southeast with industry low-call wait time. Seaspire provides one gigabit and 300 megabit internet packages to homes across Mississippi, Birmingham, and the Southern Alabama region. Seaspire is also proud to announce the release of their brand new two gigabit and eight gigabit home internet plans. Save yourself the hassle, but not waiting for your internet connection to drop with the other guys. Call or go online to cspire.com slash home today and use promo code RIPPY, R-I-P-P-E-E, at checkout for one month of free service. So if you're signing up for internet right now just for listening to this podcast, you get your first month free just by typing in that promo code RIPPY. Check them out, Cspire, customer inspired. Podcast is also brought to you by Rent the Sip Oxford. Rent the Sip Oxford's Turnberry unit will sleep eight comfortably. It's gated. It offers amenities such as tennis courts a spa, a pool, and it's right there less than a mile from the Ole Miss campus off of Old Taylor Road. Please go take advantage of this deal. The Vandy football weekend is still available. Everything else football weekend is booked up, but Vandy football weekend is still available. And then, of course, any other time, Thanksgiving holidays, maybe coming up for basketball games this year. Go ahead and book your stay at rentthesipoxford.com. Right there off Old Taylor Road, Bracken Ray, great guy, friend of the pod, would not steer you the wrong way. It can be tough to find a place to stay on busy weekends in Oxford. Maybe you don't want to deal with the hotel and get a more at-home feeling environment. This is exactly what you're getting in rentthesipoxford.com. Check out their Turnberry unit today. Go online to rentthesipoxford.com and check availabilities. And then when you check out, use the promo code RIPPYWRITES for 100 bucks off any two-night minimum. Check them out, rentthesipoxford.com, a great place to stay, a tremendous location that you should take advantage of today. All right, here is Weldon Rodenberg. All right, we now welcome on former Ole Miss football recruiting staffer, Rippy Wright's football correspondent, Weldon Rodenberg. It is our first post-game show of the year coming at you on a uh, Monday morning as it is Labor Day weekend. Ole Miss rolls through Mercer 73-7. to talk about what you can and can't take away from this game but uh it was good to have football back it felt like a normal fall weekend again um and not a ton of great games but uh some entertaining ones if nothing else uh there was definitely some interesting stories from a uh, slate that was pretty uh unimpressive to say the least for a week one um and you know it's different doing this on a monday morning i've got my coffee and having to put my thoughts together after, you know, watching the Saturday games and then watching whatever the hell happened last night. Yeah, good uh, So there's a, there's a lot to talk about despite, like I said, some pretty mediocre matchups. But there's some stuff you can take away from that, even if the scoreline is, is what it is for most of these SEC teams. Yeah, and I guess we'll just start from there. Obviously, Ole Miss just absolutely destroys Mercer. A lot of guys played. 
Um, I thought a lot of guys played well for Ole Miss. Kiffin was seemed to be his general theme after the game where he said once or twice, like, I'm not really into the coach speak. I really did think we played well today and that a lot of guys played well today. I thought Jackson Dart was very sharp. Aside from a little snafu to start the game defensively, <laughs> they kind of shored things up after that. I guess we'll start on the offensive side of the football Kiffin's doing the whole not naming a starter publicly thing, quote-unquote, leaving competition open. I think we both knew where this was headed and how this was going to turn out. I guess you could say it worked. Jackson Dart looked much sharper, much better, and a lot more uh, – I say a lot more motivated. Just looked like a better version of himself would be the best way to put it. He was pretty sharp on Saturday. Yeah, he was just very composed. I mean, for when they scored on, what, their first four drives, five drives, if it wasn't yeah. for a fumble, they would have scored on every drive in the first half that he was playing – um, you know, he was just reading the deep. Now, of course, he's not exactly under a lot of pressure from the Mercer defense. And I think that we should. He's under next to no reading. pressure is one of the things yeah. I noticed very quickly. Yeah. So everything we say, you know, can put a little bit of a grain of salt with it. Um, but no, I mean, he was accurate with the ball. He was accurate downfield with the ball. Um, you know, he made the right reads. I think they clearly had a pretty big emphasis on letting him kind of air it out and get his feet under him to start this season and get some confidence. Um, but I mean, you do what you do successfully and you're going to get some credit for it. And I think he deserves a lot of that. Um, there's still going to be the questions probably coming tomorrow or today. I don't know if they're doing, uh, whatever you call it, uh, on Mondays, kind of like a press conference or whatnot, cause it's Labor Day, but I'm sure they are. Um, yeah, he's got the Monday presser, I think at one o'clock. Um, I didn't think anything too earth shattering would come of that, but we'll see. Well, I mean, no, I don't think so either. And I'm sure that he will do the same thing that he oh, has been doing by not naming a starter, which is, you know, it is what it is at this point. You kind of expect it. Um, but no, I mean, the offense looked really good. The defense, yeah, one snafu that I actually woke up to after a little mid-morning nap after hunting and had like nine text messages saying this team was going to be awful, terrible. I didn't even see the play. I had to go back and rewind and be like, well, what on earth happened um, but after that, they were pretty stingy. Um, and we'll talk about a little bit uh, of some pros and cons on both sides of the ball. But it's, I mean, it's hard to be disappointed. They did their job. They went out there. Uh, a lot of players got to play a lot of snaps, and there was absolutely, you know, no real issues. One of the things with Dart that I noticed, and I went back and watched the first three quarters of the game again this morning before we did the podcast, was, you know, whatever you can take away from it being the opponent and how well he played and how well he threw the football down the field. The one thing, unless I missed a play, there wasn't the, oh, man, that could have been awful. What was the decision-making there? Like, whether it was a pick or an almost interception, or he just threw into something that was completely covered up, and you thought, my God, what is he doing there? Sort of like that right before halftime interception against Georgia Tech is one that comes to mind. He mm -hmm. A lot of times, I felt like at least once a game last year, he, he had one of those, and I don't remember him having one on Saturday. Now the uh resisting the urge to continue to do that is going to get a lot tougher as the competition Steve steepens, but there was not that on Saturday and I guess you could take that with the grain of salt as, you know, potentially a sign of growth. No, absolutely. I think there was like one throw in like the second quarter where you threw like a corner route to the end zone in the red zone and like there was no one there. It could have been intentional grounding and you know, I think even he was like I don't even know what happened there. But besides that one like weird throw I mean, he was pretty on. I mean, he was, what, 10 of 10 for four touchdowns at one point, uh, which says a lot about Mercer as well. But, uh, no, I mean, I think he was just really, really composed. You know, he went through all of his reads. I mean, you see the first guy wasn't open. He was coming back to, like, the backside curl, which is how Trey Harris got, like, three of his four touchdowns. 
Um, so no, it was it was a really good showing from him, and I think that that's huge going into next week, especially with this whole name not name starting quarterback deal that I think we're going to continue to deal with. Just him going out there and playing confidently is what exactly what you need to see. Uh, Trey Harris on pace to be the greatest wide receiver in Ole Miss history. Uh, all jokes aside, having three touchdowns in the first like three minutes of the game and four total, uh, I guess that'll hunt. You mentioned Dart uh, hitting him three times or at least a couple of times on those backside curls after the first initial read wasn't there. You know, jokes about averaging four touchdowns a game aside, he certainly looked the part. Uh, and I listened to his press conference after the game on Saturday. Seems like a mature kid. Kiffin mentioned something about having a little bit of Jonathan Mingo to him in the sense that he just kind of shows up and gets his work done. Doesn't say a whole lot, but you know, he's one of the hardest working people in the building. He looked really impressive. He looked the part. He looked like the potential and a dominant number one receiver that Ole Miss really hasn't had under Kiffin since Elijah Moore. Last time I said that, though, I did get a little blowback about it wasn't Mingo. Mingo is health-related. He just didn't stay on the field consistently enough for me to qualify him as that. Really had nothing to do with his abilities. But anyway, back to Trey Harris. He certainly yeah. looked the part on Saturday. I mean, yes, he did look the part. I mean, he was just a complete physical mismatch for those Mercer DBs, which, uh, I mean, that's what you want to see when you have the advantage, you know, exploit it. Um, you know, he's, he's kind of Malik Heath-ish. Uh, I think he's probably got a little bit more twitch than Malik, but maybe not like the athleticism necessarily, which is hard to tell after one game, of course, but they, they kind of remind me of each other. And look, I know Malik Heath like didn't have the best career at Mississippi state, but like that kid coming out of high school, coming out of Juco and what he showed at Ole Miss last year. Oh, by the way, he just made the 53 for the Packers. Like that's not a, I a saw that. That was awesome. Here. Yeah, it's not a knock on Trey Harris. Malik Heath is like a real deal receiver. Um, and I think they just remind me of each other by body types, kind of the way they run their routes, strong hands. Um, it'll be very interesting to see what comes of next week. Uh, but I think Kiffin giving him a lot of praise is, is twofold. One, it's because that's the kind of players that he really likes. The guys, you know, they talk about pro mindset, the guys that show up to work, not a lot of drama, you know, get their shit done. And by the way, he was hurt during spring. And he has come back from that injury, gotten physically ready to go, and is there. And believe me, he's seen guys who have gotten hurt and not shown up uh, these past two years. There's been two certain guys, including one who was a big NIL target this year in Franklin, who are not out there playing because they're hurt. So I think, you know, he's just trying to make an example of certain situations. But he's going to praise you when you deserve it, and he's going to be on you when you don't. Um, so Trey Harris, I mean, it's hard to complain with the first day. But uh, – you know, there's there's still a long way to go with this. I think they had 13 or 14 guys catch passes, which uh, I wouldn't expect that to continue. But we saw some of the guys that you've been wondering for, on some cases, multiple years. Where were they? Like Braylon Brown caught a pass. Hudson Wolf got in the mix, but the poor kid caught a pass and then got hurt coming down after he made ridiculous near the sideline. Absolutely line. heartbreaking. Yeah, it's just gutting to see. I don't know. Did we know what the injury was? I, I don't remember anyone updating that after the fact, I, but I did see him go off to the sideline and looked hurt after he made that catch. Yeah, I don't think we heard anything, but just you could just see his his left arm just kind of like dangling, which is usually like some sort of rotator cuff collarbone deal. I mean, what a catch, too. I mean, goes up on a defender, and then, man, he just came down wrong. It, that is absolutely heartbreaking.
it really is for a kid that's battled a lot just to get to that point and just to have to have it happen that fast on a play like that just really, really yeah. sucks. But point being is, you know, Jalen Knox, uh, the ghosted Jalen Knox actually caught a couple passes. He was out there on the field for 24 whole snaps. So we, I guess that we can throw that mystery away. That mystery is solved. He does exist. He is yeah. real. Uh, he He's wears here. number 27. Yes, so, <laughs> two years into this, we finally cracked the case. Uh, J.J. Henry was out there. There was just Braylon Brown. A lot of guys that you thought, hmm, do they have potential? Can they actually become a regularly contributing SEC wide receiver? You saw a lot of that, and then you saw it obviously mixed in with the Trey Harris, Aiden William newcomers of the world. And I'm interested to see what it looks like next week. How many guys can they play? How many are they comfortable playing? They did a lot of four and sometimes five wide stuff. Maybe that was having to do somewhat with the tight end situation. We'll get to that in a second. But they played a bunch of guys, and I'm very curious to see how many they actually trust when they get into a game that matters next week. It's still a pretty big question mark for me personally because um, I know that a lot of guys played a lot of snaps, but this was kind of a non-risk game. And really for the first half, the main receivers you saw out there were like Dayton Wade, Jordan Watkins, Trey Harris, and then you know, Kyron Heath was kind of split out and sometimes he was in that nub position on the offensive line. Uh, and then you saw Aiden Williams out there. But like I don't – you really didn't see Braylon Brown until, like, Spencer Sanders and Walker Howard were in the game. And you didn't see, you know, Jalen Knox and J.J. Henry until, like, the second half. So, I, I think it's still a pretty big question mark. Now, some of the guys showed up and played well when they got in there, which is not nothing. I mean, Caden Lee, the, the freshman out of Georgia, had a pretty awesome touchdown pass from Spencer Sanders in the third quarter. Um, looked like a guy who has a chance to play some snaps. But at the end of the day, I mean, they're playing who they trust. And Dayton Wade, who's a walk-on from Western Kentucky last year, is the guy that's out there starting for him first. And played and the most not, snaps to any receiver, too, by the way. Right. And, I'm like, I'm not, say, like, knocking Dayton Wade. I mean, the guy has done everything you want to from a, you know, a program standpoint, and he's proved himself. But, like, you know, once you get into SEC play and he's going up against Kool-Aid McKinnistry, that's probably not what you want out there. Um, but at the end of the day, like if they trust him and that's like all they've got, that's all they've got. Um, so I think they've got some time. I think Aiden Williams showed a lot of flashes of what people have been expecting from him. Um, and then I guess the wild card is, you know, when is Franklin going to be healthy? And I don't know anything about that situation. Me neither. But I'm not overly positive on it. Um, just from, you know, straight up tone and vibes. I guess I'm not very confident on him like playing a pretty big factor in this team for like at least the first half of the season. And I could be totally wrong, but uh, I think we kind of know where this one's going. I generally get the same, same consensus opinion there too, just simply because again, and I don't really know hardly anything about that particular situation, what it is, but normally when things like that happen, and there's an injury situation that's a bit vague in nature. And then the target date to where you thought he might get on the field, that comes and goes. That generally turns into something that lingers for a long, long portion of the season. I've seen similar situations play out that countless times. So we just kind of get the sense that, you know, if they get him back in two weeks, then great. That, that would, to me would be a bonus. But like I would think from a fan's perspective and expectations for him, I wouldn't place a, too much stock in the Franklin department for at least the first half of the season, just because we don't, I mean, hell, we don't know anything. And that's, that's kind of where I sit. And so with regard to the route receivers, you're right. There's a difference. I named all those guys who played and the guys we saw, and there was very distinct differences in when we saw them and what we actually saw. And to your point, like we saw Aiden Williams out there when the game 
not not in doubt, but the first team was playing and they were still rolling and they were still going through their top end dress rehearsal for the lack of a better phrase. And it was a lot of Williams, Watkins, Wade and Heath being split out. That seemed to be kind of mostly what they were going with. There was a little bit of Jalen Knox, if I remember in the first half, but not a ton. And then the other guys kind of came in after. And as I guess my question is, is like going into next week, how confident are you, the collective you out there in the fact that it's Williams, Watkins, Harrison, Wade as your four wide receivers. Is that enough to be a prolific passing offense? I don't know the answer to it. I thought we saw some good things, particularly from the top two guys we hadn't seen before in Williams and Harris on Saturday. But I think you'll know a hell of a lot more after four quarters next week. Right, because, I mean, not only are you playing like a team that's absolutely much better than Mercer, but you're playing in 230 heat in New Orleans, and you're going to be playing a lot more competitive snaps. Um, I mean – a ton more, despite what TV is trying to take away from college football. So you're going to have to rotate no matter what. I mean, it will not be those guys playing 65 snaps. Like, that's just not realistic this early in the season with what's going to happen next Saturday. You're going to have to find some trust in some of these younger guys or some of these older guys that are trying to work their way in the rotation. Um, So, I mean, it is what it is. Like, it is a – I'm not even saying it's a problem because I don't necessarily think it's a problem, but it's definitely a question mark going up against better teams, um, and they all performed. It's not like like they were so bad. It's like you're concerned about the guys that were out there. But a lot of these guys are are replacement-level receivers um, at most programs, Um, not Trey Harris. I wouldn't even put Jordan Watkins in that position. But, like, yeah, Dayton Wade, Jalen Knox, at this point, Braylon Brown. Like, those guys have not, you know, done anything to make you think they're more than what they've shown you. And my rule of thumb is, you know, when people tell you who they are, and I don't even mean that in like a off the field issue or whatever. I'm talking about like just as a football player. As a football player, you should believe them. Um, you know, especially at the receiver position where if you're good enough, you're going to be playing as a freshman. And when you're not playing as a freshman, there's a reason whether it's you're just not athletic enough, you can't catch the ball well enough, or you don't know the plays well enough. There's always one. Um, I'm not panicking on the situation yet because I think the guys they've been playing like are fully capable. But the way this offense runs with the speed it runs, you saw it last year at the end of the season. I mean, these guys were gassed. There's got to be some guys step up. Um, and next week's going to show that a lot. 2021, it became a problem. Like, I remember toward the end of that Auburn game when Drumming got hurt, they were playing guys that one, I had to go look at the roster and be like, who is who is that? And they just couldn't function offensively and didn't really have much of a downfield passing threat. Corral was hurt in that game. But point being, they were that was when the receiver depth issue became so bad that it was it was clearly a glaring problem. Uh, I don't know, if, like you said, that'll be the case this year. I'm just, again, it's still a question mark for me more so than an issue. And the flip side of it, if you want to transition to the tight end piece of it, is like the best version of this team with a healthy Caden Prescorn who is not uh, dressed out for this game. He appeared to be in a boot on the sideline. Uh, we had reported on Thursday that he, or excuse me, on Wednesday that he was going to have surgery to clean up something minor in his foot. He's going to miss three games and aim to be back by the Alabama game. That was disputed elsewhere. And then what do you know? He's in a boot. Um, I don't know if there's still, can you decipher surgery? It's like decide on surgery after the fact. Who knows? Anyway, I'm just a guy uh, who got a lucky tip. But anyway, not going to go there any further. Point being, he was not out there. Michael Trigg was not dressed out for the first half. I think that was an in-house, I say in-house, I don't know how it'd be an external suspension, a suspension that was not disclosed because Kiffin doesn't really do that, whatever his prerogative. Then he comes back out in the second half and plays 
And he scored a touchdown late in that game, did he not? I can't remember if he scored or caught a pass. He caught like four or five balls. I don't know if he scored, though. He put, uh, but played a decent bit in the second half. And I don't know what necessarily to make of that. You know, there, we kind of heard similar rumblings last year. He did not score a touchdown. He caught three passes. But anyway, yeah. point being, he's out there. Kyron Heath was forced into the tight end role because I hadn't even thought about Hudson Wolf. But when they announced Kyron Heath as the starter, assuming that Trig wasn't dressed out, my first thought was like, well, who else would it be? Like, is there who else just literally on the roster? And then I remembered it was Hudson Wolf. But things yeah. were pretty bare there. But Hudson Wolf looked for the short time we saw him. Man, that was a hell of a play he made before he unfortunately got hurt. Again, who knows what the injury is. But if you can get Priestcorn back and you can get something out of Michael Trigg and just, just say for whatever sake Hudson Wolf does play again this season – that that's pretty gnarly tight end room that they can use in a lot of different ways and kind of supplement maybe some question marks they have at receiver. No, I mean, we've talked all off season about, you know, the strength of this tight end room, how it's been remade compared to the last two years under Kiffin that they really needed playmakers, not only in the passing game, but to be able to be an extra blocker. And that position went from stacked to one completely depleted and instantly in a half of football. Um, and it, I mean, it's a, it's a big issue. Um, now I will say that Kyron Heath uh played admirably. I thought I he thought was, he played really well too. I thought he played really well. Um, he looks a little bit bigger. Um, he definitely doesn't look like Prescorn does. Um, he honestly doesn't look like Hudson Wolf does, but those are two like pretty outlandishly large human beings. Uh, but he was more than serviceable and I thought he ran great routes, he caught the ball with confidence. Uh, blocking was fine. Again, it's Mercer. It's not the guys who even play next week or the week after that. So, but it is what it is. You can only do what you can do against the competition that's in front of you. Uh, but he's going to have to be playing a lot of snaps now because I like, as I do in anything, when they football player tells you who they are, you listen to them. And Trig, as of so far through his entire college career, is unreliable. So as of right now, you have one tight end on your roster. And I mean, I'm sure there's a walk-on somewhere. I don't know, but they ain't playing him. I can promise you that. This guy's going to be playing 60, 70 snaps against Tulane next week if Trigg is unavailable. So he's got to prove a lot. Um, it was a good first showcase of him playing real snaps, um, but it's definitely, definitely going to have to get fixed by Alabama. Yeah, because the the Wolf injury, it just it happened in a very weird part of the game. He ended up playing the next play. Then he goes off to the sideline. He gets hurt. And I don't think there was a ton of discussion around it. But given the pre-scored injury and, you know, Trigg's unreliability, that was a pretty big injury. Because to your point, going into next week, if Hudson Wolf isn't available, you literally just have one guy in Trigg and whatever that's going to end up looking like. That's you're you're eating into your depth pretty quickly until priest corner can get back and then all of a sudden i think you feel a ton better about the tight end room but there's some intriguing options there a lot of guys on the offensive line played so if i have it correctly i think the first starting unit on the offensive line was kern warren james and then on the other side i can't remember if it was i think I it was, it was yeah, no, no. I thought it was Kern, McGee, Warren. McGee. Kern, McGee, Warren, um, James Pettis was actually the starters, I believe. That, exactly what it was. I had that messed up. Played a lot of offensive linemen in this game. There was some Reese McIntyre in there as well, either at guard or center. I couldn't tell for parts of that game. But they played a lot of different guys early on in the game. And I guess I'm not overly surprised, but I was just a mildly 
mildly surprised to see the two tackles not be who I just assumed they were in Williams and Pettis running out there for the first series. Yeah, it was definitely pretty interesting. I'm not going to, you know, take too much out of it uh, because, I mean, they talked about Kern being able to play multiple different positions. And, you know, in a game like this, especially in a team where, you know, like I said, they play very fast, you're probably not playing your five offensive linemen for every single snap of a football game. So they're rotating out to see what they've got and to see where people can mix and match, you know, appropriately. Uh, but yeah, Jaden Williams not starting at left tackle was pretty was pretty surprising to me. I, um, but yeah, I mean, I'm not going to take too much out of it. I think it's really a positive that you've got guys that you know played pretty damn well last year that are able to rotate in this year and play different spots. Um, but you know they've been trying to build depth at that position last year they definitely did not have it this year they seem pretty confident in at least seven guys to go out there and play for them and you know know what they're doing know their roles and play well um I thought they were fine uh this past weekend I thought pass blocking was a little bit better than last year um like I said and I will say against every positive thing I say it was Mercer <laughs> this is very different um, I will say that like they didn't exactly dominate in the run game, um, though I don't think Ole Miss was actually like you know smashing the ball down Mercer's throat for good reason because that would be pretty boring and you would get six yards of carry. So who cares? Um, so there was a little bit of concern there about being able to move the line of scrimmage, but I thought they all played fine. I think they're all going to play roles moving forward. I do too. And to your like to your point, that I mean that's a good thing as far as depth. Because if I just wrote it down, assuming we have the starters right now, we gotta double check that in a second. Guys yeah. who did not start, Eli Acker played a decent bit of football for Ole Miss. That's not exactly a guy you throw in and go, oh my God, how do we survive with him? The two tackles, Williams and Pettis. I was trial by fire with both of them last year. Um, but three guys that have played a bunch of football. And then Reese McIntyre, not necessarily in the exact same category as those guys, but not necessarily a, you know red shirt freshman version of Sean Rawlings being having to play for Tunso and Tuscaloosa, something like that. There's some experience with those guys and some depth. And again, the plan was probably to play a lot of guys. I don't think it's overly surprising that Victor Kern was the team starting left tackle to open the, uh, to open the year, but it was just interesting how often they rotated them out. Maybe that's something they're going to try to do more of is because they run a bunch of tempo and it can only be a good thing. If you got eight or nine guys that had played foot, a bunch of football before and been in the trenches and having his options, because I mean, as you know, better than anybody making it through the whole season with the same five offensive linemen, you have to be pretty damn fortunate for that to happen. There's probably going to be some injuries at some point. No, absolutely. And this is basically a dress rehearsal. So the ability to get like real physical snaps against guys that aren't your own guys, it's like a meaningful snap against a team you know you're going to beat. For all these guys to play different positions uh, on the offensive line and seeing who works best, you know, where are they going to run the ball more? Are they going to go be a more left-handed rush team or right-handed rush team? Are they going to be able to play more outside or more inside zone? Um, it's just tape stuff. That's all it is for, for this game uh, to get ready for the next few weeks. So you just kind of see what your best five are. And I know you've been looking at that all spring and all fall, but to be able to do it in an actual game setting where, you know, shit actually matters is huge. And they've done that and they've tried this experiment um, or whatever you want to call it. And that's not have to be an experiment. These could be the absolute starters. And that's who they thought were the starters going into this game. Uh, but it is what it is. I, I think it's a positive. I think there's still work to be done on this offensive line, but it was a pretty solid showing overall. And just to clean that up there, because I had it written down completely wrong. It was Kern. It was McGee at left guard. 
Yeah, James and Pettis did start. I don't know why. That's what I thought. It's okay. Yeah. You just you just said it incorrectly. That's fine. yeah. I I don't know why in the hell I would have had uh, McGee slighted at right tackle. But point being, that's it was Pettis, but yeah. whatever. But then the guy behind changes him, nothing of what we said so far. <laughs> <laughs> but the, and then another guy that came in and played a decent bit is said Melton behind him, which is another guy that's played a decent bit of football as well. So they have some options there. They played a bunch of guys, and you know we'll see. Hard to take a lot from that. You mentioned if they just run it at six yards of carry, they probably could have done that. It would put unnecessary tread on. Um, Quinchon Judkins and also it's just been really boring because I think they could have done that every play and not really done a whole hell of a lot else. They were able to escape putting a bunch of unnecessary tread, at least for one game on Quinchon Judkins, which I think is going to be something interesting to monitor going forward. I believe he ended up with somewhere in the neighborhood of 12, 13 carries right around like 60, 70 yards. They weren't obviously going to do a ton with him and care. I, hit him over and over and over again the first game of the year. But I do think it's something to monitor because behind him, it's Bentley and then whatever Jam Griffin can become. And the depth is not quite the same as it was there last year when you had both him and, of course, Zach Evans as a two-headed monster back there. So that is going to be something to monitor just how much, how long can they get away with not having to go to Judkins for 25 carries a game. Yeah, I mean, it'll, we'll know next week on how they're going to use him because that's going to be – I mean, I'll say it over and over again. It's going to be a tough game. Um, but, no, they did not need to rush him for 35 times this game. Uh, that was completely unnecessary. Um, and, no, the depth is not – you know, the depth is there by guys who they want to play because, um, of course, Bentley got hurt last year, so they really only had two guys. Um, but a healthy Bentley is a, a perfectly serviceable backup running back. I mean, I know there was a holding call on Aiden Williams, but that – outside run that Bentley had where he took a jump cut and then went for, you know, 15, 20 yards. I mean, he's explosive. I mean, he really, really is when he's fully healthy. Um, Jam Griffin is a perfectly serviceable guy to get five to seven carries a game. Um, and then we didn't see Riscano. And I know he's gotten a, a decent amount of hype throughout the fall camp. Uh, but look, he's a freshman. And unless you are absolutely dominant as a freshman, especially at that position in this league, it's going to be tough to get snaps and reliability. Um, I will say that Bentley fumbling the ball, that is just an absolute no-no. I mean, I can, you just you fucking can't do it against Mercer. You are going to lose carries immediately. Um, so hopefully he gets that fixed. And that was like not a hard strip by the other guy either. Um, and look, Zach Evans had issues with fumbles last year. It basically may have cost him the Alabama game. So I know there's some PTSD on that side of the ball. Um, and Kevin Smith's going to absolutely be talking about that all week going into Tulane. And I, I know it seems like nothing because the game was 73 to seven, but that is just an absolutely huge mistake um, that might cost him some carries, to be honest. But he looked good on everything besides that. And I think you're going to see a lot more backs out of the backfield catching the ball next week. They kind of showed a little bit of it. I know we talk about it every week. These guys aren't necessarily going to be lining up in the slot. But they're definitely throwing the ball to him. You saw it Judkins once or twice with, with Bentley. So it's not necessarily the the talent that they had in the backfield last year, but I think they've got three guys who they are pretty confident in right now. Yeah, and uh, Bentley's a guy that we never really got to see what he was last year. He got hurt too quickly, and clearly was not 100% when he came back. I remember whatever the first game he came back from the injury was, he did not look right at all. I think he was out there because they needed him to be but did not because that that was right around the time Zach Evans kind of started getting a little banged up. But you're right. There is some explosive nature to him that you saw in that run, particularly the one that got 
uh, called back. And we're just, again, I'm, I'm interested to see kind of what he is as a player. I remember him being pitched as a pass catching option, who is a pretty good and explosive runner as well. And we, again, we just never saw a lot of that last year. And I'm curious next week, like you mentioned, like, do you see a lot more pass catchers out of the backfield and things like that? Now that they have that option there, it's going to be something interesting to monitor going forward. I yeah, he's, kind of he's, piece had, of uh, he's had injury questions too. I mean, he was injured at SMU before he transferred, got injured last year. So, I mean, he's not exactly Mr. Reliable uh, to this point in his career, but I think he definitely provides decent depth. Toward the end of the game, they played Matt Jones, the uh, proud MIS Jackson Prep, Jackson Academy, or excuse me, Jackson Prep uh, yeah. MIS uh, alum who scored at the end to cover against the uh, against Vanderbilt last year. <laughs> that game. But I'm curious, like it was interesting to me that a guy like Matt Jones did get 11 snaps, but you did not see Riscano. I don't know what the deal is. Again, fresh, true freshman. I don't know if there's anything to make of it all, but I just figure at the end of the game, like you may give it uh, the true freshman a look, but that didn't happen. I thought that was interesting. Well, Matt Jones, um, I mean, I remember him from recruiting. He was a guy that was kind of like, you know, down the list, but he had legitimate D1 offers coming out of college. I think he had a Texas State offer from Peeler while he was there. He may have even had like a few like Southeastern and some Northwestern State and some stuff. So he wasn't nothing. He ended up walking on at Ole Miss instead of taking some of those offers. So, I mean, he's a, he's a real player. I mean, he is a he's a small running back, but he's pretty thick. Um, you know, and clearly they've been impressed with what he's done there for the past two or three years as a walk on. So probably more of a uh, kind of a not a, a congratulations to him and kind of a, hey, you've worked your ass off. You get to go in at this point. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess you're a little shocked not to see Riscano based off of things we've heard, but I think that they're kind of doing a little bit of seniority in that room at this moment. We'll get back to Weldon in just a second, but before we do, I want to take a quick break to remind you that this podcast is brought to you by Twisted Tea. Are you ready to elevate your college football game day experience? Check out Twisted Tea, your go-to game day beverage for college football fans. Twisted Tea is unlike any other beverage you've had before. It's made with real brewed tea and packs a flavorable punch with 5% alcohol and no carbonation, delivering the perfect balance of taste and refreshment that goes down smooth for every game day occasion. No need to settle for the usual. Twisted Tea turns up at any occasion, especially if you're cheering on your favorite team. Whether you're tailgating in the stadium parking lot, watching at a bar or hosting friends at home twisted tea is there to elevate your game day experience it perfectly complements your love for college football and your passion for creating unforgettable moments so let's toast to an unforgettable game day experience twisted tea the drink that fuels and celebrates your love for college football keep it twisted Podcast is also brought to you by Skybox Sports Picks. Who is Skybox Sports Picks? Well, glad you asked that the world's best gambling handicapping website, the inventors of the Skybox Matrix Interval, an advanced modeling mechanism that has helped propel Skybox to the top of the sports handicapping industry. Can't wait to see the week one college football results from Skybox. Hope you hopped on that and took advantage of it. You can go online today, skyboxsportspicks.com. Check out a picks package in your price range, whether it's college, NFL, still crushing it on Skybox NASCAR. You can try it for a day, a week, a month. Whatever you want to do, I recommend going with the year-long all-access pass. Check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com. They'll email you your picks in a color-coded spreadsheet, and boom, you're more equipped to profit than you were before signing up for Skybox. Use the promo code RIPPE, R-I-P-P-E-E, for 20% off any purchase. Check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com. Podcast also brought to you by LB's University Avenue there in Oxford. Hopefully you threw something from LB's on the grill this weekend and enjoyed watching Ole Miss win its first game of the season. If you're a Rippy Wright subscriber, that's rippywrights.substack.com. You get a free newsletter from me and discounted meats. Right now it's three six-ounce bacon wrap fillets for 20 bucks. Just go in there, show Greg proof of subscription. He'll get you signed up. 
and then go find all your own favorites. It's the best butcher shop in the world. All kinds of delicious cuts of sausages. I like the tri-tips. The filet burgers are delicious. Go find your own favorites at LB's University Avenue there in Oxford. All right, back to Weldon Rodenberg. Flipping over defensively, again, it was uh, – one snap in, it was uh, fire Pete Golding. Uh, I think Kiffin actually even made a joke. He said he went over the headset and said, you know, Pete, we paid a lot of money for you. And uh, you know that that's not going to cut it. And apparently uh, Golding said something to the effect of, don't worry, coach, they won't score again. And that proved to be prophetic. They did not score again and again. It was just one busted play. It was one where they faked like a jet sweep one way. And it looked like, again, I'm a novice from a football schematic sense, but it looked like whoever on that left side was responsible for taking the quarterback, if it was not the jet sweep, either got jammed up or something, because that fellow was not touched the entire way. He went 70-something yards completely untouched the end zone, and it was not a great start, but you could tell it was just some clearly some wild bust that was turned out to, of course, be an anomaly. Ole Miss did not have much trouble the rest of the day. No, it, I mean, it was fine. Um, I listened to the post-game show when Chase was interviewing Jeffrey, and I don't want to regurgitate exactly what Jeffrey said, but it's pretty hard not to because he was kind of absolutely spot on. Uh, there were times in this game, and I'm just going to completely take out the first play of the game because, you know, that was just an anomaly, like you mentioned, uh, where the back end of this defense looked pretty slow. Um, and it was like when you're watching other teams play, like especially like Alabama and Florida State and LSU last night and A&M, um, those guys looked just incredibly explosive. And Ole Miss did not. That being said, like Jeffrey said, a lot of defense uh, in terms of success is effort and knowing what to do. And it's probably pretty hard to get up for Mercer to do that. Uh, but it was not nothing. I mean, they definitely were still kind of had that Ben don't break mentality. Uh, I think they were, you know, kind of getting out there and making sure to limit explosive plays. You know, they're playing pretty soft coverage, but uh, it's definitely something to look into for next week because you're playing a legit quarterback next week. And, you know, are they going to be playing tighter to the line of scrimmage? Are they going to be rushing the passer a little bit differently? Are they going to be blitzing more, you know, what's Perkins's role um, compared to this week to next week. Um, so, I, I mean, I'm not, you know, sounding the alarms on this defense by any means because it's Mercer. They probably weren't exactly going explosive effort. This is the first game in a brand new scheme where it's all live and you know, it's game time, but it's something to monitor because just looking at some of the safeties coming in for run fits, I mean, they weren't, they were absolutely in the right spots but not exactly exuding a lot of physical physical confidence um, from watching the game for four quarters. And they played a lot of guys, which I think is a good thing. They have confidence, and there's a lot of guys that you're going to have to play compared to some of the past years where A.J. Finley was playing 75 snaps a game because they had no one else to put back there. Um, so it, it's definitely something to monitor. It's not a you know flashing sign of concern, uh, but it's not nothing either, in my opinion. And what did you make of any like this, how it looked schematic wise? I thought it was interesting. I'm trying to keep up with it in real time without having the kind of football schematic pedigree as someone who worked in a building. But I thought it was just interesting, like a lot of three down, but then there'd be times where you'd have the backers that they're seemingly the pseudo outside edge defensive end guys. And there'd be times where there was all three down and only one, and they would kind of drop the other two linebackers in the more traditional linebacker spots. It seemed like they used Cedric Johnson in a lot of different ways. He was dropping back into what appeared to be some zone coverages at least seemingly had some coverage responsibility yep. they moved 
Um, Perkins around a decent bit. I just thought they did a lot of different things. I don't know what to make of it at all. I'm just curious what you thought of what it actually looked like for the first time schematically. I thought it looked pretty good. I, I mean, Cedric Johnson was playing that kind of, you know, on the line sometimes in that four eye or outside, you know, nine spots. He, you know, he dropped a few times based on what the running back was doing. They're kind of playing him in that, you know, typical Jack role, the Will Anderson-esque, the, um, you know, I think Anderson, Ryan Anderson, or whoever the Anderson brother that played Ole Miss for a while under McIntyre. They kind of had him and Sam Williams in that kind of role where he's kind of moving all over the place, um, playing that, you know, three, four linebacker spot. I thought, you know, it was a pretty vanilla overall. You didn't see a lot of exotics until like third downs, which I mean, maybe that's just the defensive scheme. I'm not going to sit here and, you know, explain everything because that would be silly and I don't know everything. So it would be a little dumb, but uh, I thought it looked fine. I thought it looked, you know, I thought they were able to rotate guys in. I thought it made a lot more sense rushing four. Um, and I still have a lot of questions about this team, especially at safety and honestly at pass rusher. Uh, but, you know, it is what it is. It's the first game. And I think they're kind of getting their feet under them to understand everything. I will say assignment wise with, of course, the exception of the first play, Pretty spot on. Not a lot of plays where you were like, oh, shit, you know, what happened there? Backer? Where's the safety? Where's the corner? Um, so that was good. But like I said, there was a little bit of, man, like sometimes the team speed doesn't look exactly up to snuff. Um, but that might just be because it's Mercer. Well, I think some of that is fair because a guy like Ladarius Tennyson, who was at your nickel spot, moved to linebacker for parts of camp. I don't remember off the top of my head how he was used I probably should go back and watch not many snaps yeah and 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 so I like the team speed thing I thought it was a smart point when Jeffrey made it too and it seemed to kind of track going back and watching it the second time on a positive note one thing that I did notice is they looked bigger to me up front on the defensive line and it looked like they had a lot more guys they could trust and play like I I mean uh Xavier Harris at times really popped he looked like a guy that could be a very very disruptive interior force josh harris behind him was a big dude i didn't necessarily know what to make of how he played but uh yeah and i think this the number zero just makes him look bigger i have a weird theory (laughs) with that one the single digit but the single zero guy you just look bigger but i mean there were times where they were rotating in and out where it'd be xavian harris ivy pagese the aquilo stone kid came in and played a lot too and behind them would be Jamon Gordon, who for better or worse has played a lot of a lot of football. Isaac Ukwu and Reginald Hughes got in the mix as well. They played a lot of guys, and I don't think that's something where it was just a Mercer thing. I do think they actually feel like they can and will rotate a lot more guys in and out, which is something they desperately needed last year and didn't have. It appears they have more of that, so at least through one game. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the guys in the interior performed incredibly well. I mean, Xavier Harris is how they're supposed to look. He's a guy that when you watch Alabama play, you're like, oh, yeah, here's that next 6'6", almost 300-pound guy that's like ripping through offensive linemen. You know, that's a guy that Ole Miss has not had in a long time. Um, Josh Harris is playing the role that you expect him to play. He is going nowhere but knows, and he stopped gapping it. Um, I thought Ivy played well. I, my, like I said, my concern on the defensive line is not the depth. I think they have confidence in those guys. Not sure they have a whole lot of like upper echelon, you know, defensive ends, edge rushers, which I think is something we've talked about throughout fall and spring. Um, like who is going to get to the quarterback because you're not really expecting your interior defensive linemen to have, you know, 10 plus sacks a year. 
Um, Cedric Johnson looked good. He looked healthy. He looked explosive. But he's like the only guy I trust to be able to beat an elite offensive lineman at this point. Um, Ivy is just really not an edge rusher. He's just a straight up like athletic defensive lineman. I thought he looked good. But finding another guy, whether it's using Perkins in that Harold Perkins role where he's off the edge or Jean-Baptiste is off the edge, like going more speed over size. I mean, Pete Goldie knows what he's doing. I'm not like judging his ability to figure it out by any means, but it's definitely something to look into for the next few weeks. I mean, that was something we talked about through camp is like who's kind of the Robin to Cedric Johnson from the other side from a pure pass rusher standpoint. Oh, yeah. The way you described Ivy, I think, was perfect. Was He never, from what I saw through the first half of the game, and it was similar last year, even though it was a different scheme, he was never the stand-up, walk-up close to the line of scrimmage, almost like an edge-backer type guy. He was very much just the third guy on the left or right side of the three down front, and that's seemingly just kind of what he is as a player. So the pass rusher thing is going to be interesting. Uh, I didn't have Reginald Hughes uh, on my radar to have played a lot. Um, I didn't really know it to make him. I think he had a fumble recovery at one point in the game, but that was a guy I was surprised to see out there as often as I did. And another guy that I guess would be a candidate to fill the role we're talking about. Yeah. And then, you know, there's a lot of Monty Montgomery, a lot of Sistrunk, Gene Baptiste played a lot. I, I don't know if I feel necessarily better about the linebacker depth after one game, but it was between Perkins, Coleman, Baptiste, Montgomery, and Sistrunk. They looked okay. They looked, you know, like they have four capable linebackers on a given week. What happens yeah. if two of them go out with injuries? I don't know what's behind them, but the top end looked better. It, it looked it looked fine. Um, Montgomery is pretty explosive. I think you he's definitely undersized, but he's exactly what we had heard and seen at Louisville. I mean, he's got the, this team speed you need um, at that position. John Baptiste is a big ass dude. Um, he is, at least from what I saw, he is not fast <laughs> and I think that that's what their biggest concern with him was is that he just might not have that speed uh but he's a smart linebacker there's a reason he's starting the reason he's playing because he's played a lot of football he's in the right spots he's doing what you need to do which is absolutely important um but I definitely have concerns about his speed um playing out there Sistrunk is exactly what we've seen from Sistrunk I mean I was paying a lot of attention to linebacker this game so I think I've got a pretty good read on what I saw um he was kind of all over the place playing both, you know, Mike and kind of that will, whatever they're doing in that defense. Um, just a smart guy who's played a shit ton of snaps that can call your defense. You're confident that he can get the job done. Your ultimate replacement level player, which is okay. Um, and then Perkins, I mean, damn. <laughs> yeah. I mean, damn. Uh, he is absolutely swimming in certain scenarios, but you see it and you see it immediately. Um he is not the all-timer freak athlete that Harold Perkins is, but he is already more comfortable playing it as an off-ball linebacker than Perkins has or shit we saw last night that he's become. Uh, he is just a different type of guy, and it's going to take some time. I mean, I know he had nine tackles against Mercer and, like, a sack. He was all over the place, and that's good. Um, but I think he is going to be one hell of a football player. He is you're going to have to eventually start giving him more snaps uh, because just how dynamic he is. He definitely missed a few fits here and there. He definitely saw a little eye candy here and there. That's to be expected with a freshman. But you see it. I mean, they just haven't had a guy like there in a long time where he's just got every tool you could want. It, it's hard to not get really, really excited about that kid. 
Uh, but you have to kind of temper it just a little bit because that's a really, really hard uh, position to play in this league. His first tackle up near the line of scrimmage where he blew by the guy and stopped the running back completely in his tracks. You could tell that whoever the color commentator was was trying not to go over the top with it after one play, but he kind of had the same tone in his voice too. Damn, you can you can really see it with this kid. He seemingly looks apart, looks different than any guy they've had at that position. That's going to be fascinating to monitor, particularly over the next two weeks, because they have two real opponents the next two weeks into Georgia Tech, and it's going to be interesting to see how much more responsibility they get give to him as a freshman because I think like you said they're eventually just going to have to rely on him more and more because he is that dynamic and honestly he's better than a lot of the options they have you know behind and around him no which is which is okay I mean that's what when he came in that's what everyone thought they're like okay this guy's going to take some time but we know what he is I mean everything you heard out of fall camp was you know yeah swimming a little bit but the talent is absolutely there and eventually at some point in time, the talent just supersedes everything. doesn't matter whether he knows what he's doing or not fully. Uh, I mean, look, if he starts missing assignments left and right, then, yeah, you cannot play him no matter what. But I don't think that that was the case at all on Saturday. Um, I think he just has to see more game time. I think he's got to, you know, experience his everything. And you can only watch so much tape to understand things. Eventually, you got to get out there and show it. And, you know, you see it in every single sport. Once a guy just shows you who he is, you just have to eventually trust him. And I think they're going to get there at some point. They're going to put everything into this kid because having a player like him out there is just going to elevate the ceiling of this defense dramatically. Um, He is going to be a really good football player. Uh, One thing I had written down, the speed issue aside on the back end of the defense, a very quiet transfer pickup that seems like it might be a good one because it was at a huge position of need. Zamari Walton from Georgia Tech, I thought he looked pretty good in this game. He had a nice pass breakup. I was impressed with how he looked in a very limited sample size, but just not a guy you heard a ton about as far as attention and you know one of the higher profile guys they had in the portal. But he was out there, he started, and I thought he played pretty well. One of the few guys in the back end who has like the size and length that you expect out of de- out of defensive players in the SEC. Um, he looks the part. Uh, he had a really good pass breakup on a guy that kind of beat him by a half step, but that's what length does is you can lose by a half step and still make the play. Uh, I thought he played really well. I thought he played a lot of snaps. Uh, I thought Deontay Prince looked good out there. He, you know exactly what he is. Um, he's like a I wouldn't say lockdown, but he's pretty close to it compared to what Ole Miss has had in the past. Uh, He's just incredibly solid, knows exactly what he's doing, can absolutely make a play on the ball if he needs to. Uh, I thought the corners were fine. They were definitely playing very off coverage, letting it come in front of them and making plays like you've seen from, you know, defenses in the past. For me, it was the safety spot that I was a little concerned about, especially when they were, you know, Mercer was throwing – some of these kind of tunnel screens and outside, you know, bubbles where, you know, the corners are doing their job and leaking the ball on the inside and you would expect a guy to be there. And sometimes he was just a step or two late um, with Aishim Young and Washington. And uh, I think who else was there? Uh, White was there a few times. Um, so it, that's Anthony. Yeah. Dejan Anthony, he had an interception, which was good, but it was kind of thrown right to him. Uh, but guess what? Make the play when it's there. Um, so I'd be interested to see how they rotate those guys because um, that is a, definitely an area of concern for me. Um, and look, they didn't do anything, you know, crazy wrong. It's just you look at Trey Washington out there. And I remember Trey Washington as a recruit. 
you know, he was a really solid player, but not exactly the size, size, speed, length ratio you want. But clearly he's gained some trust with Golding on what to do. And at the end of the day, at safety, that's the most important thing. But I don't know what the upside of that position is just yet. And look, it's Mercer. So there's time and there's effort and there's more things you can focus on for Tulane. But it was really something that caught my eye. And you knew this would be a question mark and potentially an issue they're trying to cope with because they lost Tysheem Johnson. They lost Davidson Igbenison. And look at how heavy they went at defensive back or excuse me, safety in general, just in the secondary and the portal was like they I think they felt like that was something they really needed to have a short term fix for before they could fix it, you know, long term with building depth through the high school ranks. They went and got a bunch of dudes. And I think there was a reason for that. So that's something that's going to have to be shorted, sorted out. Last thing on this, just general question. If there's a, like if, if Ole Miss ends up being a team that you think lacks some speed on the back end, but it seemingly has a little bit more depth up front. Is there anything you can do schematically to cater to that and try to mask what you lack on the back end? I mean, you could, I mean, I don't know the exact answer to that question, which shows how much I know about defense. I think the one positive on if you may have a speed issue is that you have so much depth up front that you're, you're stopping the run. Maybe you can try to get to the passer using some different, you know, pressures, in order to have the guys back there not, you know, guarding as much as they can. Uh, you can play a little bit more zone, a little bit less man-to-man, and I obviously, you know, have not broken down this film, so I don't know how much man-to-man they played in this game. Uh, but I am, you know, pretty confident in the corners they put out there, which I think is really good and honestly the most important uh, position on defense, especially the way that people play offense these days. You know, safety is probably like the least valuable, at least, you know, at the NFL level, college level. It's pretty nice to have a, a guy out there that can kind of hold things down. Um, I, this is not, like I said, this is not some siren of like a massive issue. It's just an observation off of one game and, you know, not taking too much out of it. Uh, but you, we just can't go out there and praise them 24-7 for, you know, only giving up one touchdown to Mercer. You know, you have to look at things and be able to, project on what they're going to play and like I've said 10 times already and I would keep saying it you're going to learn a lot about this team next week because Tulane is legitimately good one uh, area I am sounding the alarm on we have two kickers named Caden uh Caden Davis and Caden Costa played I, I just assumed it was Caden Costa's job once he came back from his uh suspension for failing a drug test um yes. but <laughs> Yes, that did happen. <laughs> they 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 brought a second guy out there. I get. I mean, I'm a halfway joking here, but I I thought that was just strange. I mean, I, I don't know why they they played both of them. Maybe it was just to get a couple different looks. I don't really know. But Caden uh, Costa, when he was eligible to play, was pretty damn good. And now we got another Caden gunning for his job. So uh, that's something I'll have my eye on to some degree. Like what? In all seriousness, who comes out when they have a 45 yarder in the second quarter? They need to make. I would assume it's Caden Costa. But if that were the case, why not just let him kick as often as possible in a game? That's a great question. I do not know. I mean, you've seen in the past some crazy teams have had like the short field goal kicker and the long. Saban did that for a while. Yeah. Um, so maybe that's what they were doing. Cause I feel like I saw Caden Davis come out on like the 30 yarder and then Costa came out on a little bit longer one. Uh, but I actually don't even remember how many field goals they kicked. So that says a lot about how much I'm focusing on the kicking game. Um, but I have no idea. Absolutely no idea why they did that. Maybe it's the same thing as offensive line, just getting guys out there some some game time reps and some real pressure to kick, which is probably the, the case scenario. Yeah, that was probably it. I think it was just the one field goal. I think they scored what the 
10, tu- 10 touchdowns and then had the field goal added on. That'll get you to 73. Uh, this has been math corner, but uh, that oh, was good math. Yeah. <laughs> and then the <laughs> last thing, we'll kinda, like hop around the, uh, hop around and look at some other games and just talk about what's ahead for Ole Miss. The quarterback thing was interesting. We talked about this a little bit at the top of the show, but just Kiffin not naming a starter, everyone seemingly knowing it was going to be Jackson Dart. Dart was going to take about 95 of the first team reps. Um, and then, you know, there, there was no exact plan seemingly of when uh, Spencer Sanders was going to come in the game, but he comes in the game. And, you know, again, all three quarterbacks against a very much inferior opponent looked pretty good. Sanders yeah. had some moments, pushed the ball down the field in his first couple of drives pretty well. But just what do you make of this? Like, do you do you buy into Kiffin's idea that if you just le- never publicly declare anything and you leave it, quote, a competition, that it breeds the best in everyone? It seems to be a very unconventional approach. There was... We, we haven't done a podcast since Dart and Sanders both went uh, had media availability the same day. Dart was clearly frustrated by it. Um, seemed like Sanders took almost an unintentional shot at Dart in some ways that they cut from the video feed, but Neil obviously wrote it in his story. There was some weirdness there. What do you make of the way this is being handled, not necessarily how they played on the field? Um, Jeez, I, I think it's, it's confusing. pretty silly. I, I think it's pretty silly the way it's being handled. Um, I understand kind of where they're going with this. I guess they're trying to keep everybody happy and keep everybody on their toes. Um, But when you're talking about issues with culture and not being able to choose a guy that it seems like almost every teammate is confident in and dart, it does begin to, you know, become a little confusing on, on how everything's being handled. And maybe he will shock us today and come out and say, yes, Dart is our starting quarterback. Spencer Sanders may play, which I think you could say, and you'd be in the exact same scenario. Right. Right. I don't like, that is like the biggest thing to me is like, why don't you just say Dart starting and that we expect to play Spencer Sanders at some point. And if you don't play Sanders, then that's fine because that means Dart was really, really good. You, you can come back the next week in Georgia tech and say the exact same thing. And at least the team and everybody else is like, okay, somebody won this competition, even though I think we're pretty sure he absolutely already won it. Uh, But you just don't have to have this like kind of external kind of cloud around this position. Um, Look, he played really well. They've done a great job developing all three quarterbacks. So you can't really knock them on that. Uh, But I just don't fully understand the the concept behind the way they're handling this. I don't know. I think you will see Dart play against Tulane, and unless there's catastrophe with the way he plays, I think he'll play every snap. I think that will be the case, too. And, again, it'll be interesting to see what – because the the whole thing we were kind of heard throughout the offseason was that, you know, however it shook out, that you'd have uh, Walker Howard as QB2, and it didn't shake out that way in this game at all. Clearly, Sanders is the second one out there. He gets the next few series, and then Walker Howard came in at the end. I, again, it's it's just difficult to try to figure out the strategy behind it. And it's not necessarily questioning it. Um, you know, Kiffin and everyone on the staff knows a hell of a lot more about football than I do. Exactly. I just find the whole thing interesting because from what I understand, Sanders took a decent chunk of NIL money. And so, like, there clearly was some value in having it here and some plan for having him here. But then between that and the Walker Howard thing, the Sanders role is just inter- is is confusing to me. And I guess tomorrow, if Dart tweaks an ankle or something, second series – against Tulane it's Sanders coming in the game right wouldn't you think yeah I think that's 100% a fact and look Sanders looked pretty good on Saturday he did I mean, yes and for the 19th time it was Mercer 
Um, but this kid's not scared. That that's an. He's absolute a four year starter, a Big Twelve program that made an All Big Twelve team. One went to a Big Twelve championship game. He, he he's not. He's you know what he is, and it's not bad. No, absolutely not. Um, I mean, he will chunk it downfield if it's there, which I think is something that going into this decision was probably a factor of like, hey, this guy can do what we need to do if we want to go deep, whereas Dart at least struggled a little bit in that last year. Um, but at the end of the day, like you do, you can only have one starting quarterback, and I think they found their guy, and it, it'd be nice for him to get at least some sort of recognition, though it doesn't really make a huge difference, but it, it's not nothing either. Um, I, I think Sanders has proven that he is absolutely a second-string quarterback, which makes a lot of things we've heard about Walker Howard, you know, interesting to say the least. Um, but Howard played, and shit, he looked good, I would say, for what we saw. Um, but that's not exactly shocking. Um, so, I mean, it is what it is at this point. Um, I think they're confident in Sanders. I don't know if they're going to put in, like, a package for him. Um, that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense because I don't know exactly what he does dramatically different than Dart, uh, but he's a little bit bigger. Maybe he can kind of go in and run or, you know, if they have a kind of a trick play deep ball, they can throw it to him. It doesn't really matter. You know, they're going to have to play really well to beat Tulane. And I think Dart's going to be the guy out there doing it. Yeah, I do too. And at the end of the day, having Spencer Sanders, a guy that again, started four years at another power five. Not a negative. Yeah. That's not, not a negative at all. Having that as your second string quarterback is huge. The only reason I really brought up the handling of it is just because you could tell throughout this past week it did bother Dart some. Uh, Neil asked Dart straight up uh, after the game point blank of, you know, does it bother you you're not publicly named the starter? And he kind of gave a similar answer to what he did at Arkansas last year when asked about the rumors of Kiffin leaving. He started the answer with, I'm just trying to control what I can control. And so you can tell yeah. it bothers him a bit. At the end of the day, if he continues to play well, it's not going to matter at all. But that's the only reason I brought it up is just, I don't know, I would like to have my starting quarterback not really bothered by a whole hell of a lot when I go to Tulane. On yeah, and I I watched because like like you said, you literally texted me after we finished our pod last week. And like, damn, like we missed some quarterback stuff here. Those yeah, we should have waited a day. Like, I was like, all right, like let me go listen to it. And yes, when you read it on paper, what Sanders said was definitely like kind of eye opening about like the ice cream and whatnot. But when you kind of watch him say it, I think this guy's just a pretty monotone dude. And I think what he was saying was like, yeah, like we're cordial, like we're good. We're competing. Um, we are not best friends. And like, I don't think that should shock anybody. These guys don't fucking know each other. Right. <laughs> Sanders has been here for four months. Like they're not expected to be best of friends. Whereas like you can see sometimes in quarterback competitions where the guys are genuinely like competing. They have known each other for a year or two. Like that's a totally different dynamic. That is not what Spencer Sanders is here for, um, and we know that. Well, at least we think we know that. So I don't think I took away as, like, it was some big hoopla after watching it. But, again, you know, all of this could be mit mitigated by just naming Dart the starter and saying Spencer Sanders will probably play. And then being the body language judge that I am, uh, they like every time that seemed they the camera showed Dart go to the sideline after they scored or something, like Sanders is right there, like exactly. You know, but it's, it's it's not really anything. I don't think like you said, it sounded worse than maybe the way it was intended. So I don't know. It'll be interesting, but uh it'll be Jackson Dart rolling out there next week. Um, so as we kind of turn the attention to next week, there was a time in this offseason where I thought, hey, could Georgia Tech actually be a sneakily more difficult game than Tulane for Ole Miss? And Ash, after watching Tulane beat South uh, South Alabama team that won 10 games last year the way they did, I saw the line Chase put out there that the line opened up at like three and a half. I've seen it all the way up to like six. But I mean, this yeah. is clearly a game 
that Ole Miss is going to have to play very well to win. And my theory, even though Georgia Tech looked pretty good against Louisville for most of that game with Haynes King at quarterback, mm. my thought process of could that be a tougher game than Tulane, I'm going to go ahead and scratch that one and throw that one in the trash. I think them going to Tulane next week is going to be a really, really tough test. Yeah, I don't think that that take and thought process, I know Siski said the same thing, was like unheard of before the season started. And I don't necessarily even think it's completely wrong. Um, I think Georgia Tech will present some different issues that Tulane may not. Uh, but Tulane has a better coach and a better quarterback, and it's on the road. I think it's absolutely going to be a more difficult game than Georgia Tech. Um, South Alabama was expected to be a pretty good team going into this year. And Tulane handled them with, like, relative ease. Uh, they looked really good. I think they have warranted the ranking they have. They've warranted the height they have. Uh, Pratt is a legitimate quarterback. He's a, a guy that's going to be competing to be an NFL draft pick in the top three rounds. I mean, he's got size, athleticism. He's got some grit. Um, he's physical. He definitely got a little bit banged up at the end of that game. If you saw, uh, I was watching it and, for whatever reason, the game was completely out of hand and they ran him on three straight quarterback draws. And the last one, he kind of got up limping, um, which would be something to monitor going into this week. I'm sure he will be fine. Uh, but they're legit. Um, that's going to be a real road game. That's going to be – I'm going to be there. I know there's going to be a lot of Ole Miss fans there. Um, but, I mean, it's going to be hot as hell. It's going to be on turf, which is something they haven't played on um, a whole lot. It's a different kind of – deal you know it's not everything but it's not nothing either um they're gonna have to be on their on their shit because if not they will lose this game i don't expect them to lose this game um but one thing i always pay attention to is that vegas does not lose money a whole lot and you yep. definitely saw that this weekend uh with the way some of these uh spreads ended up um it's a six point spread there's a reason for that um, that doesn't mean Ole Miss can't confidently and easily beat this team, but if they're not on it, they're not on their P's and Q's, they don't have it on defense, they will lose. Um, it'll be very, very fascinating. I mean, it's a matchup of two top 25 teams in a non-conference game and Ole Miss is the road team. I mean, that's it, that's about as simple as way you could put it. This is going to be a tough one. And, you know, for, for better or for worse, between this and Georgia Tech the next week, last year was weird because we spent almost half the season – basically doing what we've done with this Mercer game where the whole caveat was we'll see when they go to Baton Rouge, whenever that was in middle October. For better or for worse, you're going to know a hell of a lot more about what this team is when they play Alabama and Tuscaloosa than you did before their first real SEC game last year. You will know a ton more, and I think we'll learn a lot over these next eight quarters where we will have a much better beat on what this team is and could be than we did even into the month of October last year. No, yeah, I think it's a great thing that they're playing this game. I think it's a great thing they're playing on the road, that they're playing it at Tulane on, on campus. I think it's going to be a ton of fun. Personally, I'm selfishly really excited because I'm going to the game and then going to the Saints game the next day. Um, so it's going to be a very long weekend in New Orleans. Um, but it's a great precursor for Alabama because, no, you know, Yulman Stadium is not Brian Denny, but it's going to be a pretty hectic atmosphere. Um, it's going to be a really exciting game. It's going to be debatably the second biggest game this weekend behind Texas, Alabama. If you look at the slate, I uh, know A&M goes to Miami, um, but like in terms of top 25 matchups, I think it's the only other one as of right now. So there's going to be a lot of hype. There's going to be a lot of quote unquote rap poison going into this game um, on both sides. There was going to be 
I cannot tell you how many people are going to be picking Tulane to win this game. It is going to be the most darling of darling home dogs you'll see maybe all season. Um, so they're going to have to be ready for it. They're going to have to be mentally focused, mentally prepared. I know for a fact that they have been looking at this game throughout the Mercer week, throughout the whole preseason. I mean, they've probably been putting in scout defenses that are Tulane. They've probably been putting scout defenses that are Alabama. Um, it's just one of those things that you do. And I mean, I'm really excited. I think he's got a chance to be a really good game. I'm absolutely picking Ole Miss to win. I think that at the end of the day, they've got more athletes. They have more depth. Tulane defensively is, you know, not the team they were last year. They've lost – I mean, they had two really good linebackers. They're not there anymore. Taiji Spears is not there anymore. But this is going to be a different quarterback level than, honestly, they've played since Bryce Young in Alabama last year. I mean – this guy's he's a different player than KJ. I mean, he's I don't know think he's not better than KJ, but he's definitely a different player uh than him. And I honestly think he's better than Will Rogers. And this is not the air raid where you're expecting a pass every single play. Uh so it'll be a fun game. I think Ole Miss will win, like I said, but like like we're gonna have to stress, you're gonna know a lot more about this team. Looking around the SEC and just kind of getting a gauge of the conference the first weekend, obviously began on Thursday night with uh Florida and Utah. Boy, we talked about it a little bit before that. Our guy Kyle Whittingham juxtaposed with the fact that Vegas only had Florida's over-under season win total at five and a half. Uh, like you said, the men in the desert, they won again because uh, that game was not close. It did not matter that Cam Rising did not play. And if there's if there's a team at the bottom of the SEC who feels worse about itself after a week, it's got to be Florida and Billy Napier. I was shocked by how bad that looked. Their offensive line was completely overwhelmed. They didn't really have much of an answer to stop Utah running the football. I was, I thought that game would be close, and I was very shocked at the lopsidedness of it that you could really tell from the opening series. Utah went into that game with a bona fide plan of how they were going to attack this Florida team with a backup quarterback. Florida went into that game with what looked like a script from a scrimmage. I mean, it was just bizarre. They could not run the football, which means they couldn't use play action pass. Mertz was looked like a deer in headlights for like the first quarter. Um, he actually did not play terrible. I thought he was in okay with the game. Like I, he did not suck. I thought that the offensive game plan gave him absolutely no help. Um, but one series uh, towards the second half of the game where they went a little bit up-tempo and actually got the ball to athletes, they finally looked like a team that you thought they might be. But, but then they stopped doing they, it. They just, they just didn't do it. They, they just did not do it. Um, they played against their strengths. Uh, they did not look very good. Utah manhandled them um, pretty much the entire game. I mean, it started from the jump with a absolute 60-yard duck that the Florida DBs just like could not find in the air. And that really set the tempo for the rest of the game. Um, I, it, it's a tough look for Billy Napier. I mean, look, I've said a million times, I think this guy's a good football coach. And I'm not going to change that yet, <laughs> despite what that looks like, because I do think that defensively, with the exception of that, like, really long pass, they, they were not bad by any means. They looked pretty athletic. Uh, but at the end of the day, they got kind of manhandled by a team playing a true freshman third string and like a walk-on second string. You can't just wait, hand wave that away. Uh, it, it's a massive question mark. And that schedule, like we talked about, is an absolute gauntlet. So this is just the first of many. Um, and they better have a different plan going into some of these games in the future because they're looking like a 4-8 and eight team. 
they really are. And that would you know fall right around that win total. So that was that was a surprising one to me. South Carolina, North Carolina, where I was in the day, I didn't get to watch a ton of this game, uh, at least from not at least not focusing. I was in a loud, crowded area for a decent portion of it. But uh, I was uh, mildly surprised by I thought North Carolina might end up being a bad team with a really good quarterback. I wasn't necessarily knowing what to expect from them offensively post Longo. They looked a hell of a lot better than uh, South Carolina does. And if you look at South Carolina's schedule, that could legitimately be a team that's like one in four when they play Florida at home. Their schedule is brutal. They really needed that one. And after about the first 16, 18 minutes of that game, uh, North Carolina really just dominated it. I mean, I thought South Carolina, what they did – excuse me, and what Florida did, they kind of mirrored each other. It's like they took the ball out of the hands of their athletes and were trying to, like, you know, establish the line of scrimmage that they just didn't have. And, like, they just did not adjust to it at all. Because when they let Spencer Spencer Sanders kind of, like, do his thing and rip the ball down the field and make – oh, sorry, Rattler. (laughs) I knew what you mean, but someone out there was going to drive him crazy. Oh, my God. I know. Um, When they let Rattler do his thing and, like, throw the ball down the field and get outside of the pocket, like, he was actually pretty damn effective. And then very similar to, like, what LSU – what happened to LSU against Florida State, like, in the second half, they just completely didn't do anything. And North Carolina, a team that has played shit defenses for, like, every year under Mac Brown, looked like absolute, like, juggernauts out there. Uh, Drake May is really damn good. Like, he's really, really good. Um, I had some – I didn't have question marks about him, but, like, there were games last year where he showed it and there was games last year where he didn't, and he came in with a shit ton of hype and played fantastic. Um, So that was definitely a shocker. That was one of the sharpest sides of the weekend by money. Um, Almost all the money was on North Carolina where, like, a lot of tickets were pretty much split. Um, So that was pretty interesting. Good one for Vegas. Um, South Carolina – Similar to Florida, similar to LSU, I don't want to like completely take this team out of context and completely throw them away after week one. Uh, But you can only go off of what you've seen so far. And it was not great. No, and their schedule is not going to do them any favors going forward, much like Florida, particularly in the first half of the year. I didn't really watch much of uh, Virginia, Tennessee. Virginia is not very good, and Tennessee looked the part offensively. I thought Milton was pretty good. Again, wait and see on them. I didn't watch any of State and Southeastern Louisiana. Did you catch I watched it? a little bit. Uh, yeah, give I me what you saw on that. I have not really seen the Bulldogs yet other than a handful of plays. What did you think? Yeah, so I was slipping back and forth between Auburn and State just because it's SEC, and there wasn't exactly a lot of you know fantastic games uh, yesterday or Saturday afternoon. Uh, they definitely started off like – Really real slow. slow, real, real slow. Um, now Southeastern kind of had some script stuff that were pretty good. And uh, I know that this similar to the Ole Miss defense, this is a brand new offense for Mississippi State. Uh, I think it's just one of those games where it takes a little bit of time to get motivated to play a lesser opponent. Um, defensively, I thought Mississippi State looked pretty good. Um, I think they had a pretty solid front seven. Um, I think offensively, the kid, the Whitmore kid, the true freshman looked pretty damn dynamic. Um, Tulu got hurt early in the game. You know, he's been very hit or miss for them. Sometimes he's great, sometimes he's not. And then Will Rogers was the exact same Will Rogers you see every single year. He completes the easy throws. The balls down the field were kind of hit or miss. He's semi-athletic. He, he's just fine. 
He is a good, he's a good college quarterback. Probably not going to lose you games. Probably not going to win you games that you need to win. I'm not like putting any alarms or any like massive, you know, check this later in the season on Mississippi state based off of Southeastern. Uh, but they look kind of like what you'd expect a team learning their offense that still has a pretty salty defense. Yeah. And that's going to be the question with them is what will Rogers is. And you know, exactly what he is. Is that going to be good enough? Because those easy, perfectly on timing throws, there's a lot of those in the air raid and like how much can they cater to him in this new system and get by? Like, is, is that version of Will Rogers good enough? Because he's going to make it through the entire season. I mean, I was talking to Haydad about this before the year started when we were doing the preview pods and he was like, look, he's going to be the quarterback because they just don't really have another option ready. Like Haydad even thought maybe his replacement wasn't on campus yet. So that's really what it's going to come down to them offensively. Cause I do think they will be a pretty good defensive team. Georgia struggled a little bit early on. I think it was only like 17, nothing at a halftime against UT Martin, open it up in the second half. I don't know how much you can take away from that, but Ken K Dent played admirably 18 to 32 uh, through a touchdown. Georgia runs away with it late. They just had so much better athletes. I don't really know what to make of it. And I don't know what to make of the quarterback situation yet. While it seemed like for the most part, Carson Beck was pretty good. Yeah, I watched like none of that game. I have nothing to say. I did see it was like 7-0 with like seven minutes left in the second quarter. That was a little something. <laughs> but, I mean, this is UT Martin. They're probably out there playing like literal you know, scrimmage script practice shit. So that they showed nothing. I, I'm not worried about them at all. And then Freeze just ran all over UMass. I don't know what to make of Peyton Thorne at quarterback yet. You said you did watch some of this. What do you think of the uh, first-year Auburn Tigers under Freeze? Uh, offensively, they looked pretty sharp. I mean, kind of what you'd expect, you know, it's not a complicated system. Not that many college football offenses are, um, Thorne looked fine. He looked perfectly competent. Um, he looked better than he did at Michigan state, which I guess is a credit to, to freeze, um, defensively, they, they've got some work to do. Uh, UMass kind of for the first half kind of was going up and down the field on them a little bit. Um, they kind of, you know, bend, don't break a little bit. Um, and UMass's quarterback is actually a Clemson transfer who I remember. And he's like, he's not nothing as a player. He's actually pretty decent. And they had some struggles containing him a little bit early. Um, they definitely put a whipping on him kind of starting the second quarter on, which is, I guess, was kind of like Hugh Free statement. Let's score as much as we can for this kind of deal, uh, which you've seen in the past. So I mean, nothing massive to take away from it, um, but they looked they looked perfectly fine. Uh, I think you'll learn a lot more about them next week when they go to Cal because actually Cal looked pretty damn good week one. Same thing with Texas A&M. That was the most obvious. We're going to score a bunch of points and make it seem like everything is fine over here offensively. And again, I don't I, I, I can't wait for that Miami game. Like, what is that actually going to look like? Is that a Bobby Petrino offense or a Jimbo offense? It was a good start for Weigman throws for five touchdowns. Seeming they look pretty sharp against a really bad team. But like next week is kind of when you learn, is this team any good? Is this any different? Or is this same old Jimbo? It is my nuclear whale all-time, you know, max play bet of the week next week. I will be taking Texas A&M minus four and a half at Miami. But this is an anti-Cristobal position more so this than is a pro, an anti-Cristobal That is correct. I have been waiting for this line to come out for no less than two months because if A&M was favored by less than a touchdown, I was going to absolutely hammer them, and I will be doing it uh, against Cristobal in Miami. It, this is just – a total crystal ball big game fade against a team that is just way more talented than them. Um, I didn't, you know, Texas and they played in Mexico. They look fine. They look exactly. They've looked every year, which is really damn good defensively, even though eventually it all falters. And then offensively Wegman is a very, he's a good quarterback. 
and they have Noah Thomas and Evan Stewart are like legit outside threats. They've got like a three-headed duo and Le'Veon Moss and Daniels and the Ruben Owens kid. Uh, I mean, they, they, they have talent. They've always had talent. Um, you're like you said, you're going to learn so much about them against Miami this, this upcoming week. Uh, I don't know if I'm ready to announce that Jimbo figured it out or that he hired the right guy. Cause I don't even know if Trino's calling the plays. Nobody does. Uh, but I'm going to absolutely hammer AM and I will live with the results no matter what they are. Um, but I, I they look pretty look pretty stingy, I'm not gonna lie. But it's game one against New Mexico. And last year that game was before we knew how disastrous AM was gonna be, that was a game where it kind of made sense in hindsight where I thought Miami looked a hell of a lot worse than A&M did and the score didn't necessarily justify it, but that's because of the amount of issues that Texas A&M ended up having on offense. And man, they just look like a team that was well, much worse coached and much less prepared in that game. And you seem to think it'll be the case this year. So I'm fascinated to look at that one. And then obviously the main one of the weekend, um, LSU and Florida state, Boy, did LSU struggle in that second half, and they did not look like a team that I thought they would. They were kind of a trendy pick after winning the West last year. Florida State really just kind of ran all over them in the second half. What did you make of that? I don't understand what they're doing with the Perkins thing. I thought 2022 Harold Perkins, probably if it ain't broke, don't fix it type of thing. They seem to be moving him around and learning a new position. I don't know why. He was pretty good in the old one. But uh, that was alarming performance for LSU. It it was very – Interesting game. It was a very bizarre game flow game uh, because, you know, LSU goes down in two plays at the one yard line and then gets another penalty uh, from AM and then just gets stuffed in like almost six straight plays. They come down, and I mean, Florida State scores, LSU goes back down and scores. And it's like, okay, we got some weird stuff. I mean, LSU fumbles a punt and then AM throws interception. I mean, Florida State, God, I cannot get that out of my head. Florida State throws interception on the very next play. Um, and then LSU is, you know, they're up at halftime, 17 to 14. And the second half was just an absolutely bizarre ass beating where Florida State scored on every single possession in the second half. And LSU looked completely incompetent on the offensive line. Uh, receivers dropped massive plays. Look, if you, I watched Whiskey and Wine with Moscona and T Bob after, which is just, you know, glorious. It was incredible. They are, I get why people don't like them because they're obviously LSU fans, but they are massively entertaining. It is hilarious. Um, and they were, they were honest. They absolutely shat on LSU. Um, I don't think LSU is a bad football team. I think Florida state might be really, really good. And look, I said it last week when you were asking me about this game, I was like, I think Florida State's wide receivers are going to be a massive matchup problem for LSU's DBs. And I guess I'll give myself slight credit. That was absolutely the case kind of throughout the entire game. They had drops in the first half to make things different. The thing I was not expecting was an LSU offensive line that is, I mean, they're not bad players. Like, I mean, Will Campbell and Emory Jones are bookends that played as freshmen last year. They have experience on the inside, but they got manhandled by Florida State's defensive line and linebackers. Um, it, it was just – it's hard to really take a whole lot. I mean, LSU could have been up 21-7, and they just, you know, had some really questionable play callings uh, in the red zone, whereas Florida State converted almost every time. So I'm not writing LSU off. I'm really giving a lot of props to Florida State. 
Uh, they outcoached LSU. They outprepared LSU. They were more physical than LSU. They were more dynamic than LSU on both sides of the ball. Uh, I mean, it was pretty alarming. Brian Kelly, after the game, was saying, like, this is not the team I thought we were. You know, we thought we were Georgia, and we came out and laid an absolute egg. Um, LSU was really bad on the road last year. And this was a shocking. I tweeted it before the game that, I mean, it was 90 to 10, 80 to 20 LSU. I mean, sorry, 80 to 20 Florida State uh, in a neutral site game. I know it's in Orlando, but LSU fans are top three in traveling. And so either they just fucking hate Orlando, which I think is very apt because that would be fair. I've been there, been to that stadium. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't give it a great review. Yeah, no. So they weren't. They did not show up, um, and Florida State absolutely did. And they, I mean, it was it was an ass beating, and they're going to have to look themselves in the mirror. Look, they lost this game last year, not in the same fashion or with the same expectations, but they were able to rebound um, and be just fine and win the West. Uh, so I I don't know. It's it's week one. It's a lot to take from it. I think this is why the fourteen playoff is so stupid. Because now LSU is going to be like they have to basically go undefeated to get in there, um, and I don't think they're going to do that. But they, I mean, they have a lot of things to look into. And Florida State, I mean, Jesus Christ, Keon Coleman, think think Ole Miss would like to have him? Yeah, I no, think LSU yeah. would like to have him. They didn't offer. I tweeted this again, and I, I don't even tweet that much. They had the opportunity to offer him twice, and they didn't do it either time. And he went and scored three touchdowns, mossing all their DBs. Uh, so, I mean, it was just really, really impressive from the Knowles. Yeah, it really was. And I agree with the 14 playoff because it's kind of the antithesis of what football is. Like you're disqualifying teams that could still be candidates to be one of the best eight teams in the country or whatever it is at the end of the year because of how they played on a night in September, in early September, which is, again, I mean, you don't see that at the NFL. Hell, that time you only see it at the high school level where teams turn into different versions of themselves. And it, it, it really penalizes you for playing a game that matters at all within the first two. Which three. is why no one played any games that mattered this week. Right. Right. And that's yeah. that's the whole thing. And I mean, I have a whole rant on how the 14 playoff is actually what ruined college football. I'll save that for another day. But it is bizarre that, like, even after the game where LSU, you know, my whole childhood had been playing these games, these, like, really big first games. I mean, Oregon and TCU, and they played Wisconsin twice. Uh, they used to play Virginia Tech back in the day when Virginia Tech was really good. They would do home and homes with them. They played Texas. And now, like, LSU fans are like, why are we doing this again? Like, why are we playing not playing just a week zero game or playing, like, grambling week one and – moving this game to week two. I mean, you've seen other teams start to do it. Uh, I mean, Ole Miss has started to do it this year. I mean, Alabama has started to do it more and more. Playing that week two game is the big one. Uh, I mean, that's not an excuse. I mean, when you're a team, the caliber of LSU or Florida State or Alabama or Ole Miss, like, fuck that. You should win the game. Like, you know, that's that's the end of the day. That's the goal. Uh, but it was, I mean, it was eye-opening. It was pretty damn bad for the Tigers. It'll be, uh, it, it was a nice, uh, Easy, easy, easing our way into the season. Again, I just don't know a whole hell of a lot about any of these teams, but uh, that's kind of what the early piece of the season is for. It is now time for the fastest growing segment on American Soil. It is Soccer Corner. I received a couple of texts about this uh, result yesterday. I actually had it on Saturday morning uh, before I went to the Ole Miss game. Nottingham Forest knocks off Chelsea. Uh, it seems like Chelsea, despite spending a ton of money on players, could continue to be a billion dollars. A billion dollars. That's absurd. <laughs> and they lose to Nottingham Forest. It was an electric environment. It was uh, 
it was fun, fun TV in the morning for sure, but uh tough, tough result for Chelsea. I, I don't know. I don't know how that's going to go for them this year, but uh, it would be kind of hilarious if they were hovering around the relegation zone. I don't think it's that bad, but man, it was, they did not look like a very, very well put together club. And uh, that was really the only one I saw. Um, and Saudi Castle struggling to start the year, but uh, it seems like their schedule was pretty tough. What do you make of the Premier League through a couple of weeks? Yeah, I mean, Chelsea is kind of just a carbon copy of what they were last year. A bunch of new players and new positions that are really expensive that have just completely not figured it out. Um, they looked completely inept against a Nottingham Forest team that is not bad. I mean, they have like real talent. They've, they've signed some really solid players that I'm sure even Chelsea would be like, man, we could have gotten that guy for 30 million instead of 100. Um, but I mean, it's, it's a really unimpressive showing. It's at home. And I know it's it seems different, but like playing on the road in these Premier League games is like a real thing. It is absolutely difficult to get results on the road, especially against top six teams. And I mean, Chelsea was just kind of manhandled. I mean, it was pretty embarrassing uh, from the amount of money they've spent. And we, this is like we're rehashing the same conversation with that club. Um, so until further notice, I consider them a complete non-factor in winning this thing or in Europe. And I'm not ready for, you know, their relegation zone yet because I don't think that's the case either. But they're going to be from 9, 8, 9 to 12, 14, I think, for the entire season unless things dramatically change. They uh, hammered, They got hammered by uh, West Ham, who has beaten Brighton, and then they beat, I believe, Lutton Town on Friday. They're 4-0 toward the top of the league. They Are they a strong team? Is this a top four, top six team in the league? We don't talk about West Ham a lot. That's, isn't that a London club with a pretty decent bit of history? Yeah, no, we we mentioned them like slightly last week. They, they've they had a really good start to the season. I continue to expect a massive regression to the mean on this team. Okay. Uh, they've done decent in the transfer. I think they have a, a manager that's just way in over his head and has been, uh, but they've kind of treed out a few, a few results here. Uh, they're up there now. I don't expect them to stay up there, but it's a big London club that's it's put in a lot of money. Uh, into their squad and you know it's they're showing a little bit of it they've done some decent business over the years uh, but I don't see them competing up there with like Tottenham and City and Liverpool and Arsenal it seems like we're getting very similar to where we were last year of Man City's going to roll through this league but we did have one challenger in Arsenal last year who hung around led the league for a lot of the season and then finally regressed to what you thought it would play out if there's an Arsenal this year if there's a team that can challenge and scare Man City a bit who is it who you think so far through four matches or whatever as crazy as it might seem Tottenham after losing Harry Kane might be that team okay. um they have looked just exceptional and their first four matches, um, they've just been really, really tough. They've scored a lot of goals. They've looked really balanced. Uh, defensively, they've been better than they've been in a while. Um, look, it's only game week four. There's a lot of time left. But if there's kind of that surprise team. And, you know, of course, look, Tottenham is not winning this league. They don't win trophies. That's just not what they do. Uh, but they've looked a little bit, uh, even a little bit better than Arsenal. Their their cross city rival, um, Arsenal, is still perfectly good. They've gotten their Gabby Jesus is back. Um, they took one to Man United, which we'll talk about in a little bit this weekend. Uh, so they're absolutely not out of it. Uh, Liverpool, depth wise, I'm still concerned about them, but they've looked pretty sharp and pretty um, solid at home. So they'll be up there too, but uh, Tottenham might be that kind of like out of not out of nowhere team because Arsenal wasn't out of nowhere either, but a contender that contends longer than you'd expect. 
Liverpool was the last team to win the Premier League that wasn't Man City, if I'm correct on that. But we don't ever talk about them as contending to challenge for the league anymore. Is that, I mean, that's a big club, big money spending club. I feel like we, I mean, you're a Man United fan, so we talk about that. Chelsea disaster, we talk about that a lot. I don't feel like we've discussed Liverpool hardly at all, despite them kind of consistently being in that top three, top five area. Absolutely. I mean, you're 100% right. We've kind of discounted them and we probably should not. The issue with them over the past two years is despite them being like really solid and having elite players, they've just had massive injuries um, all over that squad. And this year was like the first year where they kind of sold off some of their older guard and bought in some new players that have uh, played really well so far this year. So we should not be discounting them. Um, there was a lot of rumors about Mohamed Salah going to Saudi Arabia for one of these absorbent contracts. He did not leave. So that's big for them. Um, I think finding a little con- more consistency goal scoring out of their striker is something they need. And they've got guys there to do it that are really talented. Um, so, they, I mean, they're in the same pool as Tottenham. And they've, they've been pretty, pretty solid so far. It's just a matter of them staying healthy and consistent because that's been their biggest issue the past few years. My favorite area down toward the bottom relegation. We talked about Everton. Apparently, they're a very historic club. They're really struggling to start the year. They only scored two goals, allowed eight. It seems like if there's a big name that could end up becoming relegated, it's probably them. Otherwise, it's probably Burnley, Luttontown, Sheffield United, whatever your typical yo-yo club suspects. Uh, this yeah. seems real, 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 real bad. You mentioned they're a badly managed team. Are they uh, like? Would you be shocked at all if they actually went down? No, I wouldn't be. They're really, really bad. Um, they played Sheffield United early morning on Saturday, and I had Sheffield plus a half goal um, on the road at Everton. And Everton was just incredibly lucky to get a result. They ended up tying that game uh, with Sheffield. They they just they're just not very good. They they have no depth. They've had done bad business. You know, it's everything you can't do as a team like them, where like they have money and they have history, but. If you're poorly run, it shows. Believe me, it shows. And it's shown for them that they've been really inept. They will be fighting at the bottom for the entire time. Man, you, not a great week? It's it's a conflicting week. Um, I don't know if you saw the game on Sunday. I'm sure – I guess he didn't. So they're playing on the road at Arsenal. It, uh, the Achilles heel of this United team um, early in the season has been goal scoring and injuries. And then for the past two years, it's been performing away from home against top sides and they come out against Arsenal and they looked really good. I mean, Rashford hit a worldy strike to go up one zero. And then in United fashion, they gave up a goal and literally a minute and a half later. Uh, so it's one, one for the majority of the game. And then this is what happens whenever you have just done bad business and don't have squad depth. They put in two defenders who are unable to defend at the highest level in McGuire and Johnny Evans, guys who you don't know, but anybody who follows soccer knows that they should just not be on the field on the road. 1-1 stoppage time and Arsenal scores one goal. Well, actually, before we get to that, United goes up 2-1 on an absolutely bizarre offside call on like the 88th minute. I mean, maybe it's taking the game. Um, and they called offsides. It was, in my opinion, incredibly controversial. It just was like not in the spirit of the game, this offensive offside call. Um, and they put in the new kid, Hoysland, the guy we've been talking about, the 21-year-old striker who looked really good. So there was a lot of positives to take. But at the end of the day, they have no squad depth. They have injuries, and it showed. And in this league, man, 
two minutes with the wrong guys on the pitch and you will show it. And Arsenal scored two goals in three minutes and stoppage time to end up winning three, one. And it was like, there were some positives and there were some negatives. It was just a typical United road game. against a top team. So there was like the way it looks is not nearly what it was at all. That was a one, one game and they actually went up two to one and then two goals and stoppage time makes it look like it wasn't close at all when they actually played pretty well for most of the match. They, they definitely were not the dominant side in the match. Um, I think Arsenal controlled possession in the final third much better than United did, but they did what they've learned to do is they've been a counterattacking team, which is, you know, it's not exactly what you want to be. You want to be able to hold possession, but we have wingers who just have not been able to do that so far. Um, but they converted chances that they had, and that's like kind of the name of the game these days. It's all about efficiency, uh, but Arsenal was wearing them down kind of throughout the second half just couldn't convert and they had plenty of opportunities to do so but there were some definite positives to take away from it I think even the manager said after the game he's like not the result we wanted but we saw things that we hadn't seen the past few games um you know it's it's a disappointing result when you absolutely could have won and ended up losing by two goals which looked a lot worse than it was but at the end of the day that's your standards are your standards and it's not losing by two goals on the road this has been the fastest growing segment on American Soil Soccer Corner. He is Weldon Rodenberg. Good to be back doing a post-game show once again, and we will holler at you next week, man. All right, man. See you then. All right, that's going to do it for our show today. Appreciate Weldon's time, as always. We'll be back at it later this week with some Tulane-related content as uh, Ole Miss faces its first real test of the season. Thanks for listening, as always. We'll talk to you soon.